Welcome to the Majlis, podcast of the Muslim Society's Global Perspectives Project at Queen's University. Majlis is the Arabic word for an assembly, literally a gathering of people sitting together, and it was used for the sessions of learned scholars, philosophers, intellectuals, and artists brought together to discuss and debate. Our podcast intends to accomplish the same purpose of bringing together experts and scholars for discussion and conversation about the politics, histories, cultures of the Middle East, Islamic world, and Muslim diasporas. You can find the Majlis on your favorite podcast site, including Spotify and Apple iTunes. Don't forget to subscribe and let us know what you think by giving us a rating. Welcome to the Majlis. Uh, I'm your host, Adnan Hussein, director of the Muslim Society's Global Perspectives Project here at Queen's University. And we're here to talk about a very important uh, topic, uh, current events um, in the Islamic world. As many of you will be aware, August 31st is the deadline set by the Biden administration for the withdrawal of US military personnel and evacuation of NATO troops and diplomatic corps has also accelerated in light of the collapse of the previous Afghan government led by President Ashraf Ghani, who has fled the country before the stunningly quick advance of Taliban forces in the last weeks. In a very unstable situation, just hours ago at Kabul airport at time of recording, at Kabul airport, two bombs killed 72 people and Islamic State has claimed responsibility, the Khorasan Brigade of the Islamic State. To talk about the history of Afghanistan, to put it into some context, to reflect on 20 years of US and NATO's war and occupation of the country, current events and the future of Afghanistan, I'm joined by my colleague, Dr. Ariel Salzman, who teaches modern Middle Eastern and world history at Queen's University. Hi, Ariel. Thanks for returning. Hello, Adnan, how are you? It's good to have you back to the Majlis to discuss this concerning situation in Afghanistan and unfolding events. Um, As I just mentioned, uh, there was this huge uh, set of uh, attacks at the Kabul airport that killed 72 people. Um, I remember you uh, giving a presentation six years ago in 2014 after the after Canada ended its military and training involvement. Um, It was just announced um, a few hours before the bomb attacks that Canada's evacuation mission of its diplomatic personnel and others uh, has ended as well. Uh, But in 2014, you gave a talk, um, uh, a public talk about the failure of the US and NATO war in Afghanistan. It's evidently been a failure for a very long time, Um, but it's been going on and dragging on uh, for years after it was uh, obvious. What are your reflections now looking at 20 years of um, the war in Afghanistan? First of all, I don't think we can talk about 20 years. It's 
U.S. has been involved there since uh, basically the end of the Cold War. Um, they got involved after there was a coup um, that brought to power Soviet-backed um, governments, a succession of them, two parties, and the U.S. then pl promptly plunged in with their Saudi and Pakistani allies um, into an insurgency and funding basically what are now the great-grandfathers of the Taliban, um, the Mujahideen. Uh, so they funded this war. It was funded through Pakistan. Um, and it went on for a decade, basically being one of the chief causes of um, the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, during the Cold War. They bled the Soviet Union. And um, the po politicians in the United States said, basically, Afghanistan is uh, the Soviet Union's Vietnam, and we're going to cause, um, you know, the same damage. And indeed, you know, the Soviets lost uh, lots and lots of people, and um, the Afghan countryside was seamed with uh, mines, uh, some of the worst conditions beyond some place like Cambodia um, or uh, West Africa. And um, and then again, you know, as now, the U.S. cut and run. Ran, leaving um, uh, the Afghans to be plunged into civil war and statelessness until the Taliban came to power, um, uh, you know, in the late 1990s um, and gradually took over the country. That's right. I mean, they, they didn't end up taking over the entire country, but the majority no. of it. And in many cases, um, after years of devastating war and then civil war, as you point out, there were some quarters that actually welcomed them as imposing a kind of harsh justice, but at least keeping the peace in parts of the country. Um, yeah, so like looting, rapine, uh, you know, assaults on people. Millions of Afghans have been refugees all over the world, but especially in Pakistan and uh, Iran. Um, and so, you know, we let, we meaning I'm a silly U.S. citizen, um, and the world uh, basically abandoned Afghanistan after uh, funding this uh, war of attrition against the Soviet Union and destroying the country and leaving uh, the population bereft of uh, support, a government, or anything else. And uh, this continuing, ongoing, and as you said, um, you know, period of chaos, uh, which put everyone's lives at risk. And in many cases, uh, Afghan friends of mine um, and one colleague who did a lot of studies of Afghan women in the refugee camps in Pakistan was telling me that uh, the Mujahideen period, the warlord period was actually much worse than either, you know, what would come after the Taliban uh, takeover or uh, the Soviet period. Um, there was so much, um, you know, fighting and uh, no one was safe. Um, and just horrible atrocities were committed against ethnic groups. Um, and, um, and unfortunately, the Taliban continued some of those. Um, but against assaults on women and boys uh, were widespread. Uh, so this war in Afghanistan is not a 20-year war. It's a 40-year war. It's a 40-year war. Yeah, that's, that's right. Well, I mean, uh, some people have been astonished at the speed of the Taliban's takeover. I mean, I think it's clear that the U.S., when it made these um, announcements of withdrawal of uh, U.S. troops, expected the Afghan uh, 
former Afghan government um, to per persist at least for some months. Um, and so there were a lot of plans in place for continued US presence, if not through its direct military, through you know, contractors and advisors and, and other sorts of, of personnel. But the speed of the collapse of the government and the turning, uh, the either disappearance or turning uh, to the other side and joining the Taliban of uh, the National Army uh, and so on seems to have taken all the planners um, in the US and NATO very much uh, by surprise. And they're left in this situation where they're having to make these hasty evacuations. Um, in some ways, some people might suggest that that has prevented a, you know, interminable or at least very devastating uh, repeat of the period of the warlords um, um, in the period after the US withdrawal the first time. Um, um, and that at least in this circumstance, um, a major civil war has been avoided. Um, I don't know what you think about uh, about that and the consequences of this, the collapse of the government this way. Well, again, you know, six years ago, basically, I pointed out that according to just tourist references, you know, where not to travel in Afghanistan, uh, put on, um, you know, the British websites and the American, that two thirds of the province were in some, were in some state of contestation mm -hmm. between Afghan forces and the Taliban and were off limits. And within a few years that had gone as high as 90% of uh, Afghanistan was off limits. And it was not recommended that you travel anywhere except basically around uh, Kabul um, and a few other cities. So the fact that Afghanistan would and, and the existing army would collapse like a house of cards this, with this rapidity shouldn't have surprised anyone. Mm -hmm. um, the Afghan government, especially Ashraf Ghani, you know, the more we're learning about his final days in office and, and actually knowing him personally and the kind of person he is, um, one could imagine him living in a complete bubble. I mean, he did warn Biden that things were dire um, and that he shouldn't pull out the troops. He shouldn't make these announcements. Apparently he asked uh, Biden not to give out so many visas that it was basically like a run on the bank. Mm -hmm. um, and so everybody got the message that Afghanistan, that all the forces, the last retaining walls uh, against the Taliban uh, were falling and everybody you know, started uh, running. But the fact was, this has been going on for such a long time and Kabul was a complete bubble, you know, with shopping malls and a really elite, often very corrupt um, Afghan upper class living in Kabul, you know, just, uh, you know, people who got salaries with NGOs, you know, the high hardship salaries, living there in gated compounds, etc., and just completely cut off from the rest of the country or from what the average Afghan was living. I mean, the average Afghan, you know, was living with this, you know, damned if I do and damned if I don't. I mean, it's a, both, you know, bombing from the air, uh, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of casualties caused supposedly to save them from the Taliban and attacks by the Taliban. And this had been going on uh, for 20 years, this phase. Um, some of these people have been refugees. Um, and, you know, by all accounts, you know, the anthropological studies that came out in the 2010s, uh, conversations with friends of mine, 
there's such a level of cynicism. It's impossible to think that the army uh, had any popular support. Um, they were being propped up. And as soon as it was clear that there was no future, they, they gave up. Um, there's another explanation too that uh, Netta Crawford, who's um, been one of the uh, major intellectual moral uh, support of um, the Costs of War project at Brown University, she wrote an op-ed piece recently and she said she feels that the Afghan army gave up to prevent civil war. Right. Um, that they turned over their arms and say, this is, you know, this is going to go on endlessly um, and it's time to put down our arms. But I think it's a combination of all things. You know, people knew there would be retaliation. Uh, people knew that um, there was no longer any support um, for them. Um, they were demoralized. They were demoralized by the political situation, you know, with this ongoing corruption, this pretense of democracy. You know, beginning, you know, with Karzai, some hope, the, you know, bringing together notables, the lawyer Jerga and all that. Um, but by the time Ghani ran, uh, that election was contested, his second election was contested. That's and right. the pretense of, of there actually being some sort of functioning representative government uh, was clearly becoming a, a facade, a, a charade that the U.S. was propping up uh, in order to justify why they were there. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a good point about the weakness of the government and how out of touch it was so that it shouldn't be much of a surprise. I remember hearing very recently one uh, Afghan um, academic based in, in Kabul said that he heard from uh, truckers, you know, uh, transported goods and, you know, other things, uh, you know, both uh, legally and illegally, but, you know, the people who connected the country in some ways yeah. through uh, yeah. through trucking, um, you know, said that the real difference for them uh, between the Afghan government and the Taliban was that, that the Taliban gave you a receipt, you know, like you paid once your like tolls and your duties, whereas every single stop and provincial governor um, and so on yeah, in the uh, current uh, system had to, you know, take their levy and you never could count on, you know, any kind of a fair process, which isn't to say that they wanted the Taliban back, but that was their observation that the government was so corrupt, um, you know, that it uh, was just a sort of fiction of a functioning state, really. The other thing that the irony, and I said that, um, you know, I, I gave that talk actually in at uh, Queens and also in Paris at a conference that uh, was being held. And the irony is this too, the American NATO-led, US-led NATO operations, you know, with some variations here and there, depending on, you know, national governments, Turkey or maybe Canada to some extent, more emphasis on quote unquote humanitarian aid. Um, the fact is they never learned. They never learned anything. They never learned anything about the country. They never learned anything about the people. They never revised their strategy. Surge does not mean a revision of your game plan. It just means a bigger buildup, doing more of the same wrong things over and over again. Meanwhile, you know, there's been a couple generations of Mujahideen slash Taliban, and they've learned. They've learned when they're not wanted, that they've learned that 
if they go too far in one direction and if they're too punitive, they're gonna lose the support of the people. They've learned a checks and balance system. They actually had these satellite phones in villages uh, where they'd go into a village and they'd, they'd appoint, they'd say, okay, who's the guy you really respect? Of course it was a man, mm-hmm. but who is the person you respect? They put him in, in, in charge of the village. Uh, they gave him responsibilities um, and whatever funding. And um, there would be a Taliban commander who would make the rounds. But the, the person who was in charge of that village would also have a satellite phone. And if the Taliban commander, the military wing got out of hand, he would call back to Pakistan, to headquarters, and tell them and report these people. So there's a beginning of a checks and balance system. And the greatest irony here is that Ashraf Ghani, mm-hmm. who was an academic, but then World Bank person, and then in the first uh, post-Taliban government with Karzai, actually wrote a book about and, and did all these TED Talks on how to rescue failed states by rebuilding accountability from the base up. Who (laughs) did that? The Taliban did that. I mean, obviously, you know, in their own limited way of seeing, you know, right and wrong and justice in a very black and white way, but nonetheless, you know, employing some high tech fashion uh, functions like satellite funds and stuff to create some checks and balances so that their commanders, many of whom have no experience in governing, Mm-hmm. You know, and have very little education or very rudimentary education and knowledge about the world, um, would have checks by people further up who had uh, more sophistication, more knowledge, and a view of the whole. Uh, now, the problem here is, I mean, I think on that level, they, they've succeeded in at least convincing many Afghans under their control that they are the lesser of evils. Right, that they're um, as you a little said, bit less corrupt. They're, they're the less they're corrupt, harsh, they but they will yeah, be responsive. Yes. Yeah, predictability. Um, you know, some you kind know. of form of justice of administering, you know, exactly. resolution and so on. Yeah. Yes. Right, and yeah. even when they were in power, I mean, to think that they were, you know, anti-human or couldn't didn't care about the welfare of the people was completely wrong because one of the programs that they really uh, worked very hard at was the demining program. And mm-hmm. the UN um, and other international organizations who worked with them said they were very sincere. They knew they, this is an agricultural country. These are people from these villages. They know to get this country back on its feet, you have to get people back on the land. And if the whole country is just seamed with mines, um, then you can't do that. And so they were very willing to work opium eradication. Mm-hmm. Muslims, they don't believe in smoking opium, they will do it in, you know, they'll use it to fund an emergency, but in general, they were against the opium um, and were trying to suppress it. Um, In the late 1990s, there were UN reports that suggested that they had done quite a lot of uh, poppy production eradication. That's right, that's That's right, right. that's right. There was ways, and, you know, the people worked with that group of Taliban, okay, we're already you know, we're talking 30 years ago, 25 years ago, uh, said it was like, it was pulling teeth. It was very difficult, Mm -hmm. but it was possible, you know, that you're dealing with people who had been raised in refugee camps, you know, whose only formal education was sort of wrote in, you know, a madrasa school and, you know, just Quran memorization, had no knowledge of the world, had very little experience. And I think this is, you know, of that generation too, families, they've been cut off from their families, you know, very, uh, you know, you know, no contact with women, 
Yeah. Uh, so there were there were a lot of sociological things that had to do with the trauma of uh, the 1980s, um, you know, and if you're talking about, I mean, this is just struck me is so absurd, you know, we talk, I mean, it's true, we have um, now a generation, you know, tens of thousands of soldiers all over the world, but particularly the United States, hundreds of thousands who have post-traumatic stress from being, you know, in the Afghan theater, maybe, you know, four times. I mean, it's extraordinarily high given vis-a-vis -vis what happened to Vietnam. People would serve one maximum two tours of duty in Vietnam. And in the, uh, in the 2000s, we're talking about people who've served several times in Iraq and Afghanistan. So we were talking about this, this generation of PTSD. Think about the PTSD of, you know, generations of Afghans living yeah. in this continuous war, 40 yeah. years and deprivation and displacement. Um, so it's, it's really, it's, it's one of the most tragic situations um, I can think of really. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, an excellent and important point. One of the things that you're pointing out though, I think is also that, um, you know, over the course of 20, 25 years, obviously the Taliban, what we call the Taliban, this movement um, has changed. I mean, there are two, you know, at least one or maybe two generations of fighters. I mean, Afghanistan's population is incredibly young. Yeah, so most yeah. of people, you know, were raised in the era of the US and NATO war and occupation. They don't remember Afghanistan before. They weren't part of the Taliban originally, those policies. And all they have grown up and known is these Western countries that are bombarding and um, they're resisting that. And so they may have a very different perspective and approach. It's hard to know exactly what you know, whether there will be more flexibility on some of these, whether they've learned that if you want to have some kind of formal relations and continuance of, of aid while getting rid of the military occupation and military troops to have some diplomatic relations with the rest of the world, you know, will they uh, refrain from, for example, persecuting and massacring the Hazara, for example, if they want to cultivate either, both peace and maybe relations with, uh, positive relations with Iran, for example, or, you know, how will they conduct themselves? It'll be interesting to see because it's not the same Taliban as the era of Mullah Omar, you know, in the mid, late, late 90s. Um, and so that raises a kind of a question for me uh, that maybe you might have some thoughts on here, which is how, um, you know, how will they govern at this point? And we already see, for example, um, negotiations with China, and there have been apparently agreements very quickly, uh, you know, for mineral, um, you know, exploitation. And, um, you know, so the question is, is, you know, what kinds of relations will they have with, um, outside powers and what are going to be some of the regional consequences of the Taliban takeover in terms of the future of Afghanistan? Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, China is, is interesting. There's a little tiny tip of Afghanistan that borders on yeah, China. That's right. Um, Pakistan has already made it clear that they do not, will not take a stand on China's, what we now know to be a genocidal policy against the Uyghur Muslims. Mm -hmm. um, and so Pakistan has, you know, shut its mouth, you know, see no evil, um, because they have a lot of 
um, commercial, um, strategic, and all sorts of uh, ties with China and they don't want to disrupt them. And I would think that the Taliban who, you know, have had their base in Pakistan for a long time are taking some of their cues here. Uh -huh. But the problem with that is going to be very interesting because you do have, you've had a flow of internationalists in Afghanistan who worked, you know, before the coming to power of the Taliban with the Mujahideen that included um, Osama bin Laden. Right. Um, and you've had uh, Chinese Muslims uh, who yes. migrated there and Chechens and Turks and exactly. North Africans and Egyptians and everybody else. Uh, so there's a, the, the internationalist pan-Islamic, mm -hmm. if you will, mm -hmm. banner that's there. So it's going to be interesting to see how much the, uh, and there is a crossover in the Taliban. There's a Pakistani Taliban, right? So it's going to be interesting to see how much the Afghan Taliban can disengage mm -hmm. with uh, the ISI, the right. Pakistani Secret Service, yes. um, and their sort of directives um, in order to, on the one side, you know, that's what China wants. It wants that access to minerals, um, which Afghanistan is filled with. Lithium, there's oil. Well, there's, there's the possibility of Central Asian pipeline that was scuttled. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, because of all the conflict um, that would have come from, I guess, Turkmenistan, I'm not sure. But anyways, would have right, crossed through Afghanistan. project in the mid-90s yeah. that was being Yeah, in the used. 90s. That's right. Um, so there's all sorts of things that China wants, but the one thing it doesn't want yeah. is a internationalist internationalist movement where its own population. Xinjiang, yeah. you know, kind of expats, exactly. uh, refugees. So there's going to be this balance right. there. And that, unfortunately, it's a very cynical mm -hmm. balance that I think is probably weighed into the sort of calculus of the Biden administration. Absolutely. I was just going to ask. Yeah. And that for China, it's a either, it's a win-lose situation. Right. Um, but it's not going to be any skin off the U.S. because China is going to have to manage it in the sort of way of a sort of uh, North Korean <laughs> sort of model. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, that there is that danger. And Pakistan, definitely. I mean, I think the the unknowns here are India and Iran, uh, because for Pakistan. Well, before, before we go to yeah, uh, India and Iran, I just wanted to um, follow up and ask a little bit about how um, the Islamic State Khorasan Brigade attack, yeah. what does that portend in terms of a possible rift between, you know, the Taliban who for all their conservative, religious conservatism are not really radicals and internationalists, at least in their history and in their rhetoric, they've been emphasizing very much this uh, kind of Afghan resistance to foreign occupation and so on whether there will be tensions. I mean, it doesn't seem to me that the bombardment, you know, then the killing of 72 people in the airport uh, is anything that the Taliban in their current situation, or at least certain factions, uh, sort of mainstream factions, if you want, uh, of the those who were militarily successful in taking back almost all of the country would have been interested in. This is not good, I think, for uh, their interest of having these Western countries uh, evacuate as quickly as possible and adhering to the August 31st deadline, which sort of suggests that there have been tensions possibly between these internationalist jihadist sort of groups 
and forces and at least some major elements of, of, of the Taliban. I think the, the real problem here is that what I've said about the Taliban is they sort of, to my mind, what they were able to accomplish was what the U.S. never was able to accomplish, was get at the ground level, at the yeah. micro level, right? Right. I am very skeptical about them actually being able to govern the entire country. Yes. They yeah. lack that kind of technocratic, bureaucratic expertise. Well, and, and the fleeing of all these people who, the you know, brain drain, the brain drain with all the visas. The yeah, brain drain. That's right. And, um, and, you know, and whether they would have engaged these people to begin with. So I think the inherent danger is that they're not able to govern. I mean, yes. they're not able to rule. I make this decision. Right. They're able to govern at the local level. Yeah. to create little mini governments, you know, mini models in, at village level, maybe some sort of organization at, you know, province by province, but they don't, I, I don't see them having a structure. I mean, the structure then would have been something, you know, like out, out of Pakistan, you know, multi-party right. system, right? Yeah. And you don't well, see them having no, that. You don't see that. And you also didn't see yeah. um, them in their takeover uh, announcing, for example, you know, once the you know, Ashraf Ghani departs, I mean, they could have said, okay, you lower functionaries and bureaucrats and people who yeah, are administering, stay, stay in place, you know, we will be announcing plans and we intend to govern for all Afghans, but just continue, you know, picking up the garbage and doing those, those sorts of things and administering. They didn't do that. So they haven't exactly formally dissolved those things, but they also haven't really no, and they don't uh, have them the formal, go ahead to continue and they don't, they don't have, have the formal military structure. Either. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So there's no sort of real uh, defined, evolved hierarchical structure in any of the Taliban uh, things. I mean, they, they've sort of relied and it would be interesting to see on the ISI <laughs> to sort of yes. schedule these things. Right. But they don't have, as far as I can see, you know, any kind of structure that would translate yeah. into a state. To an administrative that, state, yeah. Yeah, an administrative, a uh, bureaucratic, yeah. national, you know. I mean, it's not even completely state. clear that the Qatari-based political and diplomatic leadership that has had contacts with other countries and makes these formal statements is necessarily you know, capable of directing and controlling on the ground commanders, just to point out that there is no formal structure that seems to really guide policy or statements politically by that group and local commanders on the on the ground. Yeah, yeah and then talking about demobilizing. Right. You know, how, how are these, you know, fighters going to be sort of either incorporated in the new government? How are they going to get paid? How are they going to be resettled? You know, oh, how are Paul they Bremer to... has a great idea. Just tell them to all go home. <laughs> You're no longer employed, yeah. right? Well, no, but they, they, Taliban also, I believe, promised to sort of uh, disarm, you know, yes. people. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, they're going to have this tension within their own organization mm -hmm. that bodes poorly. Mm -hmm. And then they have competitors and they've had them. And I thought that one of the reasons they were ending up at the negotiations was because of these groups that they, you know, that, you know, unless they could prove some real gains, uh, the people and young people who are disillusioned, right. we're going to go over uh, to other sides and the other, those other sides are probably better funded 
in some way. I mean, they've all got these funding streams that mm-hmm. we still don't Murky. understand completely. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, you you're know, saying that, like some of these like more internationalist jihadists. Yeah, the IIS. Yeah, the Khorasan Brigade. Khorasan Brigade. Yeah. They're winning converts. So, I mean, I think that was one of the things pushing them in the direction. The problem is, again, who, uh, you know, uh, another, you know, if you think Ashraf Ghani, you know, was, you know, foolish and, you know, just in some kind of bubble or egotistical, I mean, very, he's a very shrill, uh, you know, uh, person who doesn't suffer fools and you know doesn't doesn't work well with people i mean that was known about him to begin with and i think his last cabinet, politician and, 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 exactly and you know he lived most of his life outside in new york yeah. and and uh you know went to school in beirut etc um so uh but zalman uh Khaliza, i yeah. mean this guy is completely clueless mm-hmm. i mean he was the one saying you know all these things i mean just like in may Oh, the government won't fall. Oh, it'll take months. You know, it's it just mind-boggling how detached that generation of Afghans um, are from what's going on on the ground. I mean, they're even more so because, you know, like Ashraf Ghani, uh, uh, Salmai Khalizad, you know, they've all found their niche in these uh, international, you know, in their new homes in the United States, etc. Right. And 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 they're they're in more ways. Their head is more in the clouds in some cases than, of course, many of the military people in the U.S. Um, they were they were talking. Uh, they were uh, interviewing this Seth Moulton. You know, he's a former. A Marine who served in Iraq. He's a representative from Massachusetts now. Mm. Um, and Seth Moulton was just screaming at the top of his lungs that, you know, Kabul's going to fall. Kabul, you know, the Chicken Little, and and no one in the Biden administration listened to him. He's been saying it for weeks. Mm-hmm. You know. So well, I think go. July. You know, when in July they the Taliban made a successful advance into those northern provinces that essentially encircled Kabul, you know, was not in the south in the Patan heartlands, but up, you know, uh, and the border provinces to Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, that really cut off supply lines and access for, you know, the Kabul government. I think the writing was on the wall, and that at least was a month or so before that sudden advance where they captured a lot of cities so you know i think that should have been a very you know obvious telltale sign that the troops just went over the border to tajikistan or joined the taliban you know so um obviously there were a lot of blinkered you know perspectives on on you know on this and there was no preparation and so now we have this situation that's quite chaotic here then rather unstable, and it's going to be very interesting what what the future direction now is. Um, you were about to mention Pakistan and Iran when we were doing our sense of the regional yeah. uh, consequences of the Taliban takeover. What do you think? Um, well, Pakistan, think you know, the Pakistan, you know, friends of mine who are in Pakistan actually right now, even among intellectuals, there's a sort of um, um, wouldn't say glee, um, you know, but sort of, you know, that the U.S. has finally been chased out. And right. sort of, there's sort of a nationalist, you know, well, we did it, you know, behind yeah. the scenes with the Taliban, which made 
other Pakistanis I know is very uncomfortable. Um, but the fact is that Pakistan has never thought of Afghanistan as a separate place. Right. The border has never been defined. The colonial border has always remained. The grand line was never accepted. Yeah, was never accepted. No. Um, like Kashmir, you know, it is this uh, strategic uh, no person's land. Mm-hmm. And so Afghanistan, uh, import, Afghanistan's importance of Pakistan and India has increased since, of course, the 1990s when both became officially nuclear powers. Right. And so for Pakistan, the idea is that it's a very narrow geographic country. If there's ever a nuclear attack, there's nowhere for the Pakistani administration to run except Afghanistan. That, um, that it's part of this notion of strategic depth. So there's never going to be, as far as Pakistan, um, you know, a line there. And then, of course, you've got peoples and ethnic groups uh, that straddle both sides of the line. And, and that would be a problem in and of itself because they would be forced to choose, you know, which side they're on. So there's ways in which, you know, Pakistan will remain, you know, one of the dominant forces in whatever happens in Afghanistan and, you know, whether, and whether the Taliban will be able to put together a government at all, they might end up, you know, having a lot of, you know, visiting, (laughs) visiting officials, you know, and help uh, in doing it. The problem is North China, um, Tajikistan, you know, other uh, Central Asian countries are there too, Mm -hmm. not great shape uh, either and Iran. And Iran is going to be, I think, the wild card in all of this. I mean, they still have longstanding uh, with Shi populations, of course, in Khorasan, in Herat, in that region. Um, Yeah. And um, and they had a long time with with, uh, the Panjshir government. Um, Ahmed Shah Massoud is now his son, who's in there and who's supposedly negotiating. The mm-hmm. Taliban haven't made an assault on, on Panjshir. Uh, they're negotiating uh, with him. And, um, and I, I sort of suspect that, that the Taliban do want some kind of relationship with Iran. But um, I think that's the opportunity for if the United States would finally want to consolidate its you know, rapprochement with Iran over the nuclear deal, that was another way um, they could, you know, find some common ground and maybe uh, return to the bargaining table and discussions and diplomacy. One of the things I just have to backtrack here, in 2001, one of the great tragedies was, um, of course, the U.S. had already blown the post-Cold War, you know, many right. times over, but there was another opportunity in 2001. Mm-hmm. Almost the entire world was willing, you know, the Iranians offered help, the Russians offered help. Everyone was on board. Well, even you the know? Taliban were willing to negotiate the yeah. handover of yeah. Osama bin Laden. Yeah. You know? and everything was there, but also to rebuild Afghanistan. Yeah. And to have this international cooperation, uh, you know, and there was great sympathy for the United States. You know? <laughs> At that moment, you know, the, the, the World Trade Center and the you know, the Pentagon less so, I'm sure. But anyway, you know, the loss of life. Um, and, and of course, the Bush administration completely spit in their faces and dragged the world into this endless uh, war and the destruction 
of now, you know, not the rebuilding of Afghanistan, so the destruction of Iraq and the destruction of Syria, direct, direct result right. of Iraq. Right. And of course, no solution in Palestine. Yeah. And we can, and the list goes on and on, or Libya. And, you know. So it's just been, you know, in well, it would have, you know, it would have required, yeah, yeah. Well, it would have required the kind of self-reflection about the U.S.'s history of imperialism and involvement and responsibility for the mujahideen, even you know, becoming so powerful as to be part of the, um, you know destruction of afghanistan you know that the, there was those responsibilities were of course never really acknowledged it would have required framing uh the u.s's relationship to afghanistan within some sense of reparation rather than vengeance yeah. you know that's so that, the problem yeah it was vengeance but it was also you know as we know extreme opportunism Yes, yes. You know, you start, you start, you know, it was just like, oops, that happened. You know, right. you should have known it. But oh, there's a there's another prize that we'll go after. So the immediate diversion into Iraq, you know, that's right. But I think there's there's something else. I mean, um, I know there were the Russell tribunals on on political on uh, crimes, mm. you know, attempts to talk about Iraq, etc. But there really has to be a, a discussion about what kind of crime against humanity these wars have been. Not just mistakes. We are always talking about yes, mistakes. Yes. They're crimes against humanity. And in this particular time period, when, you know, in the post-Cold War, when so much was and is at stake, not just in terms of the militarization of the world, uh, you know, huge disparities in wealth and, and poverty, you know, between the rich and the poor, but also the climate crisis that we're in an existential state, that that 20 year period that yeah. we have lost, yes. that the world yes. has lost, that certain peoples, of course, have paid an incredibly high price for, um, is also might endanger the entire future of this planet because those resources that should have been spent, um, you know, in in cooperation in creating some sort of semblance of, of partnership uh, for what's coming, we're squandered, we're squandered. And, and worse than that, made everything much worse, made, made things so intractable um, between the powers as well as between uh, countries uh, that have been the victims um, of these machinations and, um, and, and violence, you know, on a scale that's never been seen before, you know, size, scale of bombings, you know, um, the amount of, of, of bombs that, you know, go off, went off over Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, um, you know, the drone warfare, I mean, it just keeps es escalating and, mm -hmm. uh, to a point where it's very hard to think of how we're going to de-escalate in order to really address the things that threaten everyone. So, um, but, but back to this whole thing, I mean, we don't have a vocabulary. I mean, again, I'm very, very uh, admiring of this project at Brown University when they call it the costs of war, but it really should be the crimes of war, uh -huh. you know, the crimes against specific groups, against specific peoples, but the crimes against uh, life 
as a whole, humanity as a whole, that these are new type of, of crimes against humanity and they're being carried out with weapons and technologies that have not been in existence before this, um, which distance ourselves from them even more, like with the drone uh, system. Well, Ariel, I, I think that is a really um, profound way to sum up what uh, the consequences of um, the last 20 years. You talked about it, that it's been 40 years. So in, in some ways, it's the consequences of the last 40 years. But the uh, missed opportunities, the criminal waste um, that the global war on terrorism has caused for humanity globally is a way of really reflecting on this moment uh, that goes well beyond the particular tragedies for the Afghan people who have suffered, as you pointed out, disproportionately and horrifically through the U.S. and NATO wars there. Um, but the consequences are truly uh, global uh, for, for humanity. And we are at this moment where looking back 20 years have been utterly wasted and we have a huge challenge ahead. So I really want to thank you for those reflections and for your learned and erudite analysis um, of the Afghan situation. Thanks so much for discussing with us on the Muchless. Thank you. Thank you for joining us in the Majlis, a podcast by MSGP. Muslim Society's Global Perspectives, or MSGP, is an initiative at Queen's University dedicated to connecting the complex history of Islamic societies with the contemporary world. You can connect, learn more, and support us by checking out our website, www.queensu.ca slash MSGP, and stay up to date with our events by following us on Twitter at MSGPQU and on our Facebook, MSGPQU. You can also follow our YouTube channel, The Mitchless.